0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and He calls us to preach the Word and proclaim His gospel. We pray that as you listen, you will be strengthened to know,
1: love and live for Jesus. Alright, well, why don't we kick it off with a very, very serious question. Um, So, Peter, you've got two dogs. One's called Bertie, and one's called Beatrice. And let's say hypothetically, Cross and Crown, we got together and we were to buy you another dog, <laughs> what would you name this new dog? Betty. Bertie. <laughs> it would have to be a lady dog. It would have to be a lady dog, yes. Oh, that's right.
0: B.T., Bertie, and Betty. Very good. Very good.
1: All right. Uh, the first question is... Oh, by the way... Uh,
0: Beatrice's short name is Beat, you see, which is quite good, because when she wants to get up, I say, upbeat. (laughs) And when I want to get down, I say, downbeat.
1: (laughs) Yeah, That's that's a very upbeat thing to say. (laughs) So before you talked a little bit about some direct leading that you feel like you've had from God, can you tell us more about this, and how did you know it was God? Well, it doesn't often
0: happen to me in terms of uh, making a decision about a job. It's only happened once, and that was when I was in Durham and thinking about coming back to Australia. Um, I now think it was, uh, it was something that God was saying to me because of the things that happened to me when I came back, which were uh, really good for me. So I think the change of situation and change of ministry was immensely stretching. And that was a very good thing. So I now regard it as a good gift of God. So in retrospect, I can see that, yeah. But the other, the other time it happens is when I'm talking to somebody. And uh, often, a God puts into my mind something they need to talk about about half an hour before they do. But I don't say, oh, I know what you need to talk about. But it helps me shape my questions. And then when they do talk about it, I'm kind of ready for it. So it's not infallible, uh, but it does. it's a gift which does help me shape uh, talking with somebody more purposefully and more productively, I think. Yeah. I don't know what gift it is, but
1: it's a jolly useful one, I can tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, so today you've also talked a lot about the Holy Spirit and its relation to Scripture, and there seems to be sort of Um, large disagreements within Christian circles about the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, Could you touch on that topic?
0: Yes, sure. Very happy to. Well, I think all Christians agree uh, that the... Well, I hope all Christians agree that the words of Scripture are the words of the Holy Spirit of God. So one of the most important things the uh, the Holy Spirit has done has been to be the, the means by which we get the Scripture. I think all Christians believe that uh, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, that um, uh, that the Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, that the Holy Spirit uh, helps us discern the truth, that the Holy Spirit, we should be looking for the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So I think all those things are really basic. Uh, the area of disagreement is a particular one, I think. Um, just going back in history a bit to when I was young, uh, Uh, John Wesley was the Protestant who introduced into Protestantism, Protestant Christianity, the idea of two-stage Christianity, which for him meant uh, the kind of the Christian who was trying to live a Christian life, and then the Christian who had moved to the second stage, which was the victorious Christian life. Uh, And he, he wrote and sang about this, and it was a very important thing. And that was picked up in the 19th century by the holiness movements. Uh, and the idea was that perhaps the first stage you were useful to God, but the second stage you were really useful to God. Or it was picked up by the health uh, movements that uh, Christians who were in the first stage of the Christian life still got sick, but if you were in the second stage you didn't get sick. And then from all of that, which was in the Wesleyan Church and the Salvation Army, it then got picked up by the charismatic movement of the early 20th century that there was a first stage of the Christian life uh, in which, in one version, you weren't baptised with the Holy Spirit, the second stage in which you were, or in the first stage, you weren't empowered by the Holy Spirit, and the second stage, you were. And I think two-stage... Two-stage Christianity is a mistake, in any of its forms. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm quite sure that every Christian is, as Paul says in one Corinthians, every Christian is baptized in the Holy Spirit. You can't you can't be a you can't call Jesus Lord except by the Holy Spirit. So I'm sure that all Christians are equally indwelt by the Holy Spirit, temples of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm also sure that all Christians ought to be growing in the fruit of the spirit, which means putting the works of the flesh to death every day and becoming more spirit-controlled in their lives. That's, uh, I, um, And I hope we'd all agree on that. Um, but the idea of two-stage Christianity, I think, is unhelpful. Uh, and I mention another hesitation I have about the charismatic movement, and that is that it may overvalue... A temporary a, a contemporary experience of God over the historic revelation of God in scripture, so i I have a contemporary experience of the Holy Spirit, but I don't regard it as more important or more authoritative or more clearly God's words than the words in scripture. however, uh, I've benefited greatly from the charismatic movement, I think because Well, I notice actually even people who aren't Charismatics pray for healing. The moment they stub their toe, they instantly become a Charismatic and start praying for healing. So there you are. Uh, And Charismatics have the great uh, great insight into the fact that God is active in the world today. Uh, So uh, every day I pray that God will change me, and he does change me. Every day I pray that God will alert me to his good gifts that he's given me today and that makes me more thankful. He does that by his spirit. And every day I ask for, to see glimpses of his glory in the world around me and he answers that prayer. So I have a strong sense of the spirit shaping my life all the time in that practical and immediate, immediate way. Uh, to, to use uh, some theological language, I think many reformed Christians are deists rather than theists. That is, they believe that God set up the world and now it functions automatically. Or God taught us how to live by the Bible. That's our textbook. But they don't expect God to actually work through the Bible. Whereas I expect, when I'm preaching, I expect God to be working through the scriptures. When I read the Bible, I expect God to be, the spirit to be hard at work. changing me, actively changing me. So uh, although I'm not a, you know, capital C charismatic, I do have a strong sense of God's continual work in the world today, in the church and in my own life.
1: So we all believe as Christians that the word of God is perfect Yet at the same time, there are so many interpretations of this perfect Bible sure. and numerous Christian denominations. How do we sort of reconcile those two? Sure.
0: Well, what would you expect uh, looking at human beings but that we would uh, understand some words of God and misunderstand others? That doesn't surprise me in the least. When I look at the ratty way in which uh, the, even the churches Paul founded and uh, planted, how quickly they turned away from Paul's gospel and how quickly they got confused. Uh, I'm not surprised at all. And indeed, the New Testament tells me that the last days, which is all the period of time between Jesus' ascension and Jesus' return, will be times of massive confusion. That's what Jesus told us. That's what the other New Testament writers say. So I'm not surprised by the confusion, stuff like that. Uh, Partly it comes about because... uh, People have different insights, partly it's because people miss things which were in the Bible and then somebody else finds them. Partly because we tend to create our Christianity in reaction against somebody else's error, and thus producing the opposite error. So no wonder we're in a mess. The New, Te- the New Testament churches were in a mess. I mean, isn't it amazing in 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy chapter one, Paul says, all who in Asia have deserted me. Well. If you think think of Paul's ministry in Asia Minor, which is Ephesus, Colossae, Galatia, Antioch, uh, uh, and you think that that even if he only means all the Christians I raised up for leadership in Asia have deserted me, well, if that's happened so rapidly in Paul's day, I imagine it would happen today. And I don't think... I don't think I have Christianity right. I'm not infallible in my interpretation of the Bible. Now, uh, I could imagine that God could have made it simpler for us. He could have made the Bible simpler to understand. But he didn't because God has a high expectation of believers. And he has, he, entrusts, he trusts us to work hard at the scriptures. We need to work hard at the scriptures to find out uh, what the fullness of their meaning is. So uh, often Christians today are looking for the minimum you need to believe to be saved rather than the maximum that God has revealed in the scriptures. Uh, I think we should be looking for the maximum that God has revealed in the scriptures. And then there will be disagreements. Some disagreements about are about minor matters. Other disagreements are about major matters. So is God a rabbit? The answer is no. I think the scriptural evidence is against the theory that God is a rabbit. But should we baptize children of believing parents or not? Well, I don't think the scriptures are clear on this matter, actually. Uh, So then you have to decide what you're going to do. So there's an area of disagreement immediately. Well, God seems to cope with that all right. If he would wanted to make it clear, he would have. He didn't. So we have to live with that diversity.
1: And in regards to falling into error in reaction to other people's error, oh. what do you think would be the sort of errors that we might be prone into falling into? <laughs> and perhaps, Adam, is as a church, perhaps you can also comment on this after.
0: Well, I think uh, Protestants are frightened of uh, an overemphasis on the sacraments. So they tend to think, well, if the Roman Catholics are too excited about them, we must dumb them down as much as possible and believe that God is active everywhere except where the sacrament is being celebrated. It's a remarkable viewpoint when you think about it. Uh, I think Christians, Protestant Christians today are suspicious of structures And, uh, uh, but God seems to be a structural God as far as I can see and uh, Timothy... Titus is to make up what's deficient in the church and appoint elders in every city. So God seems to think structures in church life is quite important. My father had been brought up as a Baptist, though he was never—he was a beached Baptist. He was never wet, uh, never baptised. But from his Baptist heritage, he knew that praying prepared, prepared prayers, that is written prayers, was second rate. And a decent minister could pray an extemporary prayer. Um. So he, he thought I was joining the losing side by joining a church where we had prepared prayers. But I love asking, uh, I used to love asking students at Ridley, where in the Bible does it say that God works immediately and not beforehand? It's a very common idea that God that God the Spirit only works at the last minute. <laughs> well... When do you think that all the scriptures were completed 2,000 years ago and they're all by the Spirit of God, it seems that God the Spirit can actually manage to work ahead of time. But uh, I find it so funny. Here's a great way to get people to listen to your sermon. You say, well, now, look, I have spent six months preparing a sermon for today, but as I was driving here this morning, God said to me, I've got a fresh message for these people. And then people go, oh, this is really exciting. This must be from the Spirit. So then I pull out the Bible and start reading it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really do that. I'm just joking, honestly. It was a joke. I, I was at a
2: conference <laughs> where that happened, but he, didn't, he, he, held, he held his notes and said, I spent all week preparing this, but I felt the Spirit speaking to me today on the drive here, so I'm going to put that aside, and he literally chucked it off. Sure. And then he started speaking, and I thought, Oh, I'd like to see what's on the sheet of paper. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. Much more
0: interesting. It's like reading the newspaper in the in the train, isn't it, or something? Other people's newspapers are much more interesting than the one you're actually reading yourself. <laughs> and other people's conversations I find fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for that contribution, Adam. Yes, yeah, no
2: <laughs> I think when it comes to our church, um, I've been thinking it's important to know... Um, Not just individually but corporately, what our besetting sins are. But then it struck me that it's also important to know what our besetting heresies or unbeliefs are. So, what are the things that we naturally fall into wrongly believing about God uh, and ourselves? And I think something that stood out to me, um, I think this is quite awkward for me answering this as well, because um, I, I did, many people have said that a church ends up reflecting the strengths and weaknesses of its preaching pastor. So, I may be liable for this, right? Um, but as I think about my own heart and as I speak to many other people, I think we, we deal well with black and white, but we're not good with grey. I, I think we like justification by faith alone because the positional clarity of I am justified before God is a wonderful comfort. But then when I think it comes to sanctification, the idea of growth in Christ-likeness, we just don't know what to do with that. Uh, it's, it's much greyer, it's harder. And I suspect what we end up doing is we fall back. There's a healthy sense in which we fall back on our justification. We hold on to Romans 8.1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But then I think we have awfully low expectations of ourselves and each other when it comes to our growth in godliness. Um, so I think it's easy to despair of the fact that we don't change. And then instead of using justification as an anchor for our sanctification and further growth, we use it almost as a free pass on not growing in holiness. So we say, well, at least I'm justified. I stand right before God. Here are some sins in my life that I guess I'll never be able to get rid of. I just have to live with this for the rest of my life. And I think that's... It's partially sad, but also a misuse of justification, which I think Paul would say, no, that's the anchor for your new life in Christ. So now live as the new person God has created you to be. But I think we end up falling back on that as our, in one sense, a safety net, but then it means we don't actually see the greater glories to which God is calling us to in our sanctification. And I wonder whether it's because, if you're a bit of a logic chopper like me, you like black and white. Um, and there is a certain sort of greyness that comes uh, with daily living for Jesus and putting sin to death. And um, so I wonder whether that is something that is there for us.
0: Can I comment about that? Uh, I was so struck a few years ago into a Bible study by, uh, given by Glenn Davies, who was Archbishop of uh, Sydney, and he said the characteristic description of believers in the New Testament is saints. And I thought, oh, I've always thought of myself as a sinner. It was quite a shock to think I'm a saint, as Paul puts it, as, you know, to those who are saints and called to be saints. So that when you think of yourself as a sinner, you just think, well, that's the way I am. If you think I'm a saint, then you think, well, actually, I should be being transformed. So that's something I've learned recently. So uh, perhaps it's... Uh, it's uh, it may be a thing which you know we all need to work
2: on. Yeah. Yeah. We're not we're not our old selves trying to become something new. Right. We are our new selves shaking off what is old. That's right.
0: Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's good. That's very good. You should be a preacher, I reckon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just I discern a preacher. Yeah.
1: Spirit <laughs> prompting. Um, on that very topic. A lot of the time when we as Christians, um, we are in the midst and we are fighting sin, um, sometimes it's hard to actually believe that we are Christian and that we even have the Holy Spirit. How do we know that we have the Holy Spirit? Well, you know that you
0: have the Holy Spirit because you're aware of your sin. If you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be aware of it. So that's wonderful, isn't it? Uh, But the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you there. The purpose God, the Holy Spirit's purpose is to show you your sin and then draw you to your Saviour. And I love saying to people, the one prayer that God will always answer yes to and always answer yes immediately is, please forgive me. So it's the sign of the gracious work of the Spirit in us that we are aware that we are there are still areas of sin in our lives, and there will be until the day we die, but where we should be making progress. I love having the picture of an area, er- you know, some people live the Christian life as an aeroplane, You have lots of energy to get up into the air, and then you coast for the rest of your Christian life and then sink down to your grave. It was actually what God... <laughs> what, what God calls us to do is continual growth becoming more and more like Christ, being transformed into his likeness from one degree of glory to another day by day. So I found a great prayer in that book, The Valley of Vision. Uh, It was, may my last day be my best day. Well, I've changed that to, may this day be my best day. That is, I'm expecting to serve God more wholeheartedly today than I did yesterday, and I'm expecting tomorrow to be even better. Now, that doesn't mean I'm making progress all the time. I'm sliding backwards a lot of the time. But I should be aiming. Uh, Paul puts it in Philippians, isn't it? Not, as would he, not as if I've already attained, but I, I, I'm, I'm uh, pressing forward to make my
2: own because Christ has made me his own. That's right. yeah. It is why I think, as a church, that, that second talk was very helpful to talk about that words, God's word is written for his people. Um, And how do we know that we have the spirit in us well i think it's constant reminding and speaking god's words to one another it's why i get the point but i don't like to primarily say well tim you're my accountability partner because that's immediately framed it in context that i will stuff up and you're there with a big stick at the end though there may be some there is help in discipline But I also wonder whether we don't see the need to speak God's words positively to one another when things are going well, to spur one another on. I mean, the greatest disinfectant is light. So if you have a big vision of God and you keep speaking of the big vision of God, you will propel one another on to greater heights of who God has called us to be. But if we're only there at the end of the road of sin and I know that the only time I ever talk to my accountability partner is when they say, oh, well, you know, you're stuffed up again. Uh, Actually, I need to be talking to them, and they need to be talking to me, saying, Adam, I was reading um, Ezekiel in the Scriptures, and I saw this magnificent picture of God's glory, and it just astounded me. I don't think we would ever do that, Jim, normally, but we don't feel like there's a need to do that. But actually, doing that regularly enlarges our vision of God puts life and sin into perspective and reminds us of who we are. So I think if we can actually work ahead of the curve rather than reactively, that is a good reminder of our identity in Christ.
1: Back to the topic of the Holy Spirit. Here at Cross and Crown, we love the Holy Spirit. We do. Um, Does God speak through the Word in some ways and through the Spirit in other ways? Is it possible to overemphasize the word at the expense of the spirit? Uh,
0: well, I don't think it's possible to overemphasize the word in contrast to the spirit, because this, the <laughs> the Bible is the Spirit's words. So every time I quote the Bible, I'm quoting the Spirit. So I don't I don't think it's possible to. Uh, if you quote the Scriptures, you're not. Ignoring the spirit, you're speaking the spirit's words. Uh, um, but here's, here's, a, here's a work of the spirit, witnessing to my spirit that I'm a child of God. Now, I think the spirit does that by convincing me of this, that the scriptures are true, which tell me that is the case, and by illuminating my mind as to what uh, what those scriptures mean for me. But I don't want to confine the spirit to the scriptures but i don't want to give uh other verbal revelations or impressions or feelings the equivalent uh, value to the scriptures that's what i don't want to do yeah. but uh without the fruit of the spirit without this spirit bearing fruit in my life i won't be changing yeah though i think it's i think it's also true to say that to talk about the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians five, is the same thing as to talk about the transom being conformed to Christ's death and resurrection in Romans chapter six. It's that the work of the Spirit is not different to the power of the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a different way of talking about the same thing. Yeah.
1: A question about the canon of Scripture presumably the authors wrote slash spoke more than what is compiled in the Bible. Who or how was it decided, what to keep in the Bible, and what to let go? Sure, yes, good. Well,
0: uh, John tells us suddenly that Jesus said did many other signs which are not included, so absolutely, Paul wrote letters we don't have. Moses, no doubt, said many things which aren't in the Scriptures, so there's no particular worry about that. Uh, the, but the thing is, why did God choose these words to be of universal uh, significance for every believer, for every Christian, until the Lord Jesus returns? So that's a pretty high expectation, isn't it? Now, uh, the, the answer is, well, God could have sent down a list. Here it is. Uh, but then you'd say, well, how do we know the list is true from God? It might be somebody else's list. Uh, what the way in which God convinced us that these were the books was by convincing God's people that they were the books. So that's what happened with the Old Testament. That's what happened with the New Testament. The people asked the question, which books are accepted by most Christians in the world today? And the answer was the books of the New Testament. Uh, then you say, well, isn't that, the, isn't that the church granting these books authority? No, it isn't. If, if you're an expert on um, butterflies, for example, and I ask you, what's the best book on butterflies in the world? You say, well, strangely enough, it's written by Miss Butterfly. It's called Butterflies by A Butterfly, see? Now, it's not that you've granted the book that authority. What you've done is recognised this is the best book on butterflies. It's a book called Butterflies by Miss A Butterfly. So that's what the church did. They recognised the authority of these books, the power of these books. They didn't grant them that power. There is, I think, um, I lectured in theology just a few weeks ago and somebody said there's a new book by someone called Kruger, I think, on the canon, which they thought was a jolly good book. Uh, so if you can find it. It's
2: by I'm Michael sure. Kruger. But...
0: Michael Kruger, sure. Yes. Thank I... you. Jolly good book, I'm told. But I haven't read it. <laughs> But somebody else who was reliable told me, so it's probably right. Look, I've answered that question in a minute or something like that. But, you know, we could sit down and talk about it for four hours. I'm not saying, so just shut up and don't ask the question. If you want to follow it up, read a good book on the subject. So I'm not trying to damp down discussion or thought about it. Keep These are great questions. Keep asking them. I'm giving you my brief answer just to show you a direction. That's all I can do today.
2: And I'll upload uh, a Gospel Coalition article written by Andy Judd, uh, who wrote on that matter as well. And so that'll be online this afternoon.
1: At Cross and Crown, something that's really important to us is actually seeing people come to Christ. And we want to be sharing the gospel with them as well. Um, But something that they're obviously going to be asking about is how can we know that we can trust the Bible. Sure. So how would you explain to a non-Christian that the Bible is truth and what evidence might you use? Yeah. Well the lovely thing is that God speaks to
0: people through the Bible even when they don't believe it. So my aim with non-Christians is to get them to read the Bible with me. I say you don't have to believe it, you might think it's a bunch of fairy tales but let's read it together. Let's look at Matthew, Mark chapter 1 or whatever it is. Let's read it through together. Now what strikes you as interesting about that? And then off we go. Because I think that God, God is the one who brings his word home to human hearts. I don't have to prove it beforehand. They don't have to believe it. But as they read it, I think uh, the, the sign that God is working in them is that they'll suddenly think, oh, that's really interesting. I'd not thought of that before. I don't agree with that, but I'll think about it a bit more, or isn't that a wonderful thing to find? So don't bother proving, proving the, or the truth of the scriptures. Get people to read it, is my advice. Yeah, It's got its own power, yeah. I mean, Paul John said, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you may have life through his name. So presumably, John's gospel has that power given by God. It's a powerful book, not just a true book. Let it do its stuff. You back it up, you get people to read it,
1: but you let it do its stuff as well. So here at Cross and Crown, we baptize people uh, by sprinkling slash pouring, while other churches baptize via full immersion. Does God's word point us more in one direction over the other?
0: Adam's brought some water out. I don't know if that's (laughs) it. I think baptism in the New Testament was more likely to be dunking people. Uh, And I think dunking people is a more, it's got the picture of death and resurrection about it, which sprinkling doesn't have. So we used to have a bath in St. Jude's. And uh, if I baptized somebody, I'd put them under the water for about three minutes <laughs> and then drag them out just before they expired as a symbol of the fact that baptism is about death and resurrection. <laughs> one one night, by the way we 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 only had cold water, and someone decided it was a cold night, so they got some heated some water in the urn and brought some teapots forward with uh, water, and they all had tea leaves left in them so the poor chap was baptized into weak tea uh, (laughs) and came out covered in tea leaves which was rather nice Um, so I think uh, I prefer to to dunk people but if there isn't a facility to do that I'm happy to sprinkle them squirt them from a distance uh, with 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 a hot water pistol no a water pistol Uh, I don't think God is confined by the quantity of water we use.
2: So, from a church perspective, uh, (laughs) I think the question that the way that I tackle it is not so much um, answering that question in particular, uh, but asking the question of how vital is the amount of water for an effective baptism, and also to what extent must there be Christian agreement on this for the sake of joint fellowship within church? Um, so, as a church, we, we would think it's, that the Bible is um, non-prescriptive one way or the other in terms of the volume of water. Uh, so, as Peter said, you can have water pistol, water jug, uh, or any any amount. Um, the question then is, um, to what extent, Uh, Does your conscience allow you? uh, Does your conscience uh, insist on a particular mode of baptism? Uh, And so, uh, if you're a historic Baptist, they would say that. And uh, and only effective baptism is one under full immersion. Um, And I think Brethren people historically would as well. Um, Other traditions would say it doesn't matter so much. Um, The approach that we take is it doesn't matter so much. Um, So. With that said, the question then is every church has to come up with its own practice as to how it will do it, with the facilities that are available to it. Um, So my bigger thing is less about the quantity of water, but the question of insistence on the matter um, and whether you think it's an effective baptism or not. So if you were baptised by sprinkling at another church or by dunking or by water pistol, um, I would probably not prefer water pistol but I would say that you're validly baptised then. Uh, So I wouldn't dispute the legitimacy of your baptism based on whether you were fully immersed or not. So that's how we think about it.
0: Yeah, I happen to be reading a bit of Baptist history at present, and uh, in the the 19th century in Britain there was a lady who was paralysed and they couldn't put her in the water. They decided that they'd regard her willingness to be baptised as sufficient which I think is a very sensible decision. Uh, I might just say at St. Jude's, the Anglican policy is, you know, you baptise new believers and baptise babies, but if people came along and they didn't want their baby baptised but blessed, I'd say that's fine. I don't think the New Testament makes it clear. We're happy to bless your baby or baptise it as you wish. So St. Jude's had a broader policy than here, that is, well, I don't know, sorry, I shouldn't say that, but in terms of babies, we uh, we would... baptize a baby or agree not to baptize a baby according to what the parents wanted but people were happy with that flexibility
2: yes first for the married couples who are thinking about having children uh i would think it's a good idea to baptize your baby but in the end it's your call and that's okay either way
1: in your years as a christian and reading the bible um, which books of the Bible do you still find harder to read? Or what subjects are you still learning and pondering on?
0: Well, I think I find big books hard to read. So uh, Jeremiah and Isaiah, uh, I find hard because they're so big and it's hard to know what bit I've got to Uh So I do tend to have a commentary next to me just to give me an outline of the book when I'm reading them to know what stage I'm at in the book. Um, But uh, but one of my eccentricities is that I love lists of names in the the Bible. I think they're the best bit because I think if you you were one of the people who came back from exile uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem, it's lovely that your name is actually recorded for everybody to know forever even if we've no idea who you are and there you are in the book of Ezra because that tells me how much God valued those people who came you know did the risky thing of came coming back from babylon to Jerusalem and i think that tells me how much God values the people whose names we wouldn't otherwise know and that tells me how much God values the people in churches whose names you wouldn't know from reading the history of the church or something like that. So I, I love those lists uh, uh, Lists in, in the Old Testament. They're not exciting, but I think they're wonderful because it shows God's love for those otherwise unknown people. Yeah. So I'm constantly surprised by how exciting the Bible is uh, and uh I'm excited and surprised by its power and beauty.
1: As you um, do ministry, how do you deal with discouragement that you might receive during it? What were some helpful things that mentors have done for you in times when you were discouraged?
0: Well, I think uh, discouragement is uh, a constant issue for people in ministry because you have to live with the gap between what God has promised to do and the reality of what's actually happening in your church. So, you know, the Bible tells me the church is the bride of Christ and the temple of the Holy Spirit. And here we are arguing about the color of the carpet or something like that. I mean, that that I that I find a constant discouragement. Um, uh, How does God encourage me by pointing out Uh, the beauty of ordinary Christians in a church, by pointing to Christians and ministers who continue in ministry really really in immensely difficult circumstances, by reminding me that people are being martyred today for the sake of Christ and standing firm in the midst of martyrdom. I find that so moving and so encouraging. I'm encouraged by the fact that building the church is Christ's business. Jesus said, I will build my church. And I love saying to Jesus, This is your church. You're the builder. I can't do it. Please get on with the job. Uh, I love the fact that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And the power of the gospel is not just to make believers, but to make people mature believers and to make churches mature churches. So God has provided all the power necessary to make mature churches and mature believers. I'm encouraged by the power of the scriptures. So if I just believe the scriptures were true but not powerful, I'd have to make them work. Or the people would have to make them work. But because I believe the scriptures are powerful, then the scriptures themselves in God's hand will do that work. I'm encouraged because all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. And I'm, in, I'm encouraged because if we suffer with him, we'll also be glorified with him. And I'm encouraged because one day God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Yeah. I need lots of encouragement. I'm a natural Eeyore, uh, you know, predicting the end of Western civilization as we know it, and the Church of God two days later. Uh, but God, as I read the scriptures, God constantly encourages me. The most encouragement I have comes from the scriptures and from looking at ordinary believers who just love God. Yeah.
1: And on that same topic of discouragement in ministry, how can we as a church best encourage Adam and others in the pastoral team? Sure.
0: What a lovely question. By growing as believers, I think, by putting sin to death, by growing in righteousness, by loving each other and serving each other, by growing in maturity as a church together. That's a tremendous encouragement for a minister. I think the greatest discouragement for ministers is when people become consumers, not contributors. So the inevitable discussions I've had after church for the last 50 years. I didn't like the flowers today. I didn't like that song we sang. Uh, That sermon was a bit long, wasn't it? Uh, I was preaching at a church in London, and there was a lady in in the second row who'd say after 10 minutes, stop, stop, it's time to stop, stop, stop the sermon but the people behind her were saying, Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So I just ignored her and focused on them. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the most encouraging thing for a minister is growth in godliness and willingness to serve.
1: So something that we've been hearing about is that in Jesus, every single promise is a yes. Yes. So we also talked about us being part of Abraham's descendants and sharing in the promises made to him. In what ways do these promises also apply to us?
0: Uh, Well, uh, we see that all nations will be blessed through Abraham's descendant, through the Lord Jesus Christ. So every Gentile believer is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, which means that every time a Gentile, a non-Jew is converted, or a Jew is converted for that matter, the promise, God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled because he was promised descendants as numerous as the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. So every new believer is a sign that God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled so that both encourages me uh, that, that God's purpose is being worked out but also encourages me to take my part in God's global gospel plan that 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 promise will be fulfilled um, yeah so it, it is the progress of the gospel which is the fulfillment God's promise to Abraham. Do you want to add to that? I've got a bit
2: lost. No, I think um, there's remarkable comfort in it as well as we think about those promises. We think about uh, that covenant formula, I will be their God and they will be my people. um, And how that, that the promise of land and the promise of people and blessing I think what we do sometimes in our when we read the Bible and see it in light of Christ, where we go only halfway there, meaning we see how it's fulfilled in Christ and then we stop. But we're still looking backwards. But we still don't see how there is a greater consummation to come. Yeah. And that, that, that final consummation that we don't do very well is actually some of the most encouraging things partially. So, for example, we think about, um, I think, Uh, as terrible as COVID has been, it's been the greatest thing for eschatology. It's been the greatest thing in terms of longing for a world to come. And I think we look back at how Christ fulfills God's promise of land and rest, and you see that in Hebrews 4, but then now there's a real deep sense of longing of that promise has been delivered but will be consummated even more greatly in the world to come where God will make this world new. I think it's remarkably comforting when you think about... um, Uh, the presence of God, now that, as Peter said, it's not just that as a church, uh, but as individuals, we're temples of the Spirit. Um, I find one of the best places to road test theology is in in an aged care home. Uh, And when when I cared for my grandmother and I saw people there, what a remarkable comfort to think that when you're by yourself, with no one else around you, God's promises to Abraham are being fulfilled because the Spirit dwells in you and you are never. there is never a moment of your life that you are truly alone. That's, that's a powerful thought that we get to reap the benefits of today and we get to look forward to the world to come as the full and final enjoyment of all the promises that we read in Genesis 12. So, I think, yes, look back to how they're fulfilled in Christ, or almost look, at how, look back at how they're kept in Christ and then look forward to how they'll be fully enjoyed in, in eternity. And I think that, that final push is one that we don't do so well, but I think it actually fuels our perseverance. Mm-hmm.
0: That inheritance kept, mm. that uh, uh, pure, un- uh, undefiled, uh, what is it in 1 Peter? Kept in heaven for you, oh. who by faith are being guarded for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. And uh, Hebrews 11, Abraham was looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham was looking actually beyond the land to the future, the new Jerusalem, and we're looking to that as well.
2: Which is remarkable because I think we often think Abraham only uh, was short-sighted. He only saw as far as Canaan. But but Hebrews 11 tells us that he saw Canaan and beyond. So even the promises in Genesis 12, though they had a this worldly fulfillment, were already anticipating yeah, right. something greater to come. Not just in a retrospective Hebrews eleven way, but no, even from Abraham's perspective, he could what he was longing for was far greater than just came. Yeah.
0: And I think one of one of our weaknesses is we're so at home in this world we're not longing for the next one. And that's a feature of twentieth century Christians. nineteenth century, boy they were looking forward to the world to come. Yeah. <laughs> and perhaps we're too much at home here, and so not we don't have Peter's sense of being an exile waiting for Christ's return and for the new heavens and the new earth.
2: Yeah, yeah I read somewhere, someone wrote of Jonathan Edwards that one thing that he was able to do was he saw spiritual reality as the deepest reality and the most fundamental reality. Was I think for us what we do is we go, what is physical and material is real, and what is spiritual is kind of in another ethereal category that we treat as different. But actually, it's inverted in one sense. I mean, that, I don't want to end up in a dualistic sort of, this world doesn't matter. But actually, the, the deepest reality is what God is doing by His Spirit. And one day, heaven and earth will be one, and He will transform this world by His Spirit. But I think our perception of reality is, not, is so often not default of Scripture's.
1: On that topic of being too at home here in this world, um, you said that Melbourneian Christians attempt to love both God and money and prove Jesus wrong. How do we discern between stewarding money wisely in giving, providing and investing and loving money?
0: Yes, yeah, thank you. What a great question.
1: Um,
0: t- to love money and to worship and serve money is to make it as an end in itself as a a means of providing certain happiness and stuff like that. I think uh, if you're disciplined about your money, how much you have, if you're disciplined about how you're spending it, and if you're giving away generously, then you won't be ruled by money. And if you're concerned about how you're dealing with your money, then my advice is talk to uh, another Christian about it and explain your finances and say, this is what I'm doing. Do you give me, have you got any advice for me? Uh, if you're fortunate enough to have lots of money, you can do what a friend of mine did, which is decided that he would live on what the minister got and give the rest away. That's a good policy, isn't it? But you have to, you have to plan that rather than just, it won't just happen. I, remember when i was about 30 thinking 30 years old thinking oh, i'm probably giving you know about 20% of my money away then i did the numbers it took me a while of course uh, but anyway i discovered i was giving away 3% which i thought was sure to be 20% so since then i've been trying to increase the percentage of the money i give away each year sometimes it doesn't work that way but i'm trying to do that so i'm trying to i have an intentional policy and I make sure that I give the money away at the, uh, as the first call on my bank account, not whatever's left at the end of the year, do you see? So these are ways in which I'm trying to control my love of money and make sure that I'm uh, serving God uh, and not, not myself. Yeah. But uh, I'm not married, I don't have children. It's probably good for you to talk about this with other people. and you know, What are you doing to make sure you don't serve mammon? Why not have that conversation? It's a great conversation to have and you'll find lots of wisdom from your friends. Uh,
2: Proverbs 30, I, I love this. Um, Give me neither poverty nor wealth, feed me with the food I need, otherwise I might have too much and deny you saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal profaning the name of my God. So, if I have too much, I will forget God I don't need him if I don't have enough then I might profane the name or curse God but notice actually it's not just not too hot not too cold just right it's actually you can be rich and you can be poor and still be greedy in either context in either state I do think it's interesting though the way that Jesus talks about money (sighs) there are warnings against having too much Um, and you don't want to I think Peter's right, you want to invite the wisdom of others. But I think there is a sense in which we should be slightly distrusting of our own hearts with this sort of question. Uh, I find Proverbs interesting because so much of it is written on the assumption it's a father writing to, or the persona of a father to a young man, and a young man at the position of life transitions, making decisions in life. And sometimes I just think we are, I, I think it's wise to distrust ourselves with having too much. I was listening to Ian Harper, who's at Deloitte Access Economics. He helped at the minimum wage for the Fair Work um, Commission previously. And, and he said, look, the reality is, give me neither poverty nor riches. But if you live in 21st century Melbourne, the reality is you're probably already in the riches category. Uh, so so your, your, your society has default allocated you. You may not need to chase it as much as you already are. In world terms, we're richer than we could possibly imagine. Uh, and so I think we should not confuse cost of living with cost of lifestyle.
0: And when we ask the question, am I rich? What we always do is think of people who are richer than we are <laughs> and think, no, I'm not. But uh, Ian Harper's point is if you look at people who have no money, then you actually, you are rich. Yeah, that's
2: right. I think I heard someone, I can't remember, I was listening to a sermon somewhere, but someone said... Um, when the government wanted to bring in taxes on the rich, Kerry Packer said, well, I'm not as rich as that other guy. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> and, and you're just comparing to the next person up the chain. So
0: It's like beauty, you know. When you always think other people are more beautiful than I am. You may, think, you may wonder why I think that, but I do. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> but that's the natural tendency of envy, isn't it? We yeah. look at people who have more than we have and then feel discontented.
2: Someone at church had a really helpful comment. They said, so often, uh, we are the ones to set the standard for each other. So you'll often notice someone will say, Tim, when will you dot, 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 on the assumption that you will, right? So when will you get a new car? Never. <laughs> when will you buy, you know, your X number home, right? But the, the question of when presupposes that you will. But why the presupposition? What, why the expectation so I think the when question is a really interesting one because it, what we do for each... See, I can say all this stuff from Sunday at the front, but I can tell you, actually, I'm not quite sure how much impact it will have. I think the greater impact would be the word worked out among one another. And so I would say this is corporate application for us as a church now. The standard you set for yourself is not just... You're not just setting it for yourself, you're setting it for your brothers and sisters around you. And there can be a certain sort of financial escalation that can happen within church where you just kind of, we keep setting new standards for one another. And so what we then expect of ourselves, well, we look at, but what about that other person at church or that other couple at church, and we must be like them. And then we see five other people like that, and then ten other people like that, and we think, oh, gosh, I'm, I'm dirt poor. <laughs> but you might not be. So the standard we set for ourselves is actually the standard we set for one another.
0: I was, I was, uh, I've got a friend who's a vicar in a rich, a rich suburb. He said... The people in this church keep extending their houses or renovating them, not because they want to but because their friends are and they don't want to feel left out because they will feel, you know, inferior if they're not also renovating their kitchen or something like that. You think it's a really bizarre reason to go through the bother of renovating your kitchen. I can't imagine why you'd do that. But it's the,
2: the wanting to belong. That's very childish, isn't it? And the funny thing is, we might not even be aware of those motivating factors in our hearts. Yes, I'm sure. Yes, so we borrow the yeah. rationales and excuses of one another, yeah. right? So then we pass it off as that, but actually, in our heart of hearts, it's, well, I don't want to be left behind.
1: Let's have, let's finish off with this last question. Um, you've been a tremendous blessing to us this weekend. Thank you so much for bringing God's word to us. Um, how are you going? Um, How can we be praying for you?
0: Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you. Well, um, I need more godliness. Yeah. That would be a great thing to pray for. Um, It doesn't get easier to fight sin, and I keep on discovering new sins in my life, which I need to put to death. So uh, praying for more godliness would be terrific. The other thing that, that happens when you turn 90, whatever it is, I am, uh, is that your memory goes, but your energy levels go down a bit. And so I can't do as much as I used to, so wisdom to know what to do and what not to do would be really helpful. Yeah, It's wonderful. Thank you so much. Can I just say how much I'd love being with you? It's been so terrific. And I'm very, I, I, I'm, I thank God for you uh, and praise God for each one of you because you're all, all, you're all a sign of Abraham's blessing and God's grace and the product of the Lord Jesus' death and resurrection. So I'm very encouraged by being with you. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Let's give Peter a round of applause. Thank you.